So if someone were to spend a year with you, living with you, staying in your home, going to work with you, spending holidays with you, going about with you in the everyday stuff of life, when you go out and do your errands, when you coach the league, whatever it may be, what would they see? What would they learn? What would they see about who God is? And what would they see about what faith looks like in your life? So for example, if someone were to spend a year with me, they would see that I'm doing my very best to love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. They would see that I love my family, that I'm trying to love my wife as Christ loved the church, that I'm trying to raise my children, trying to train them in the way that they should go to know, love, and follow Jesus. You'd very quickly find out that I love baseball. I love books. I like to fix things. I like to work with my hands. They would also see that I'm a work in progress, that I need to grow in patience and discipline. They would see that I have besetting sins. They would see that I have struggles. They would see that I doubt. They would see that I repeatedly have to ask my family for forgiveness. In short, if you were to spend a year with me, you would see that I have both faith and failure, that I have triumphs and struggles. And so this morning as we're continuing on our sermon series through the book of Genesis, we're trying to walk chapter by chapter, and we're in part two, chapters 12 through uh, 36, called Covenant and Longing, where we see that God has established a relationship with his people, and that because of that there's great joy, but there's also great longing. And over the last several weeks we've been looking at the life of of Abraham. And the Bible in Galatians chapter 3 calls Abraham the man of faith. The man of faith. If you remember in Genesis 1 through 11, very quickly in those uh, uh, 10 chapters, we covered 2,000 years of human history. It moves very, very quickly. And then when we get to Genesis chapter 12, looking through uh, uh, the next 10 chapters, 12 through 22, it covers about 25 years. The first 10, 2,000 years, and the next 10 slows way down to 25 years. I I think of it like coming out of hyperdrive, just slowing down immediately. And I think one of the reasons why Genesis slows down to a crawl at this point is to help us see what a life of faith looks like. Abraham is the man of faith, and it's this this first person in God's redemptive history that has this relationship with God. He's called a friend of God, and we see what faith looks like. Abraham's life, in other words, is faith illustrated. We could read books about principles and propositions about faith, but I think when we look at Abraham's life, we're seeing faith on display. It's like a movie where we can watch what a life of faith looks like. And so throughout these chapters, we're with Abraham in his faith and fear. We see his triumphs and failures. We see his strengths and weaknesses. And in our text this morning in Genesis 20 and 21, we're with Abraham for several years. We're going to be with him for three to four years of his life. And we're going to learn three things about faith. The first thing we'll see is that faith is a work in progress. 
So if you're taking notes today, that's going to be our first point. Faith is a work in progress. Abraham fumbles and falls just like all of us. We'll see him trust in himself instead of trusting in God. We'll see that when pressure mounts, he, like all of us, tends to fall into old habits. Faith is a work in progress. Second, we're going to see that a life of faith experiences both joy and sorrow. You heard in our scripture reading today, Isaac is finally born. We've heard God promise it over and over. And he is a front row witness to the faithfulness of God fulfilling his word, keeping his word. And there's joy that comes from seeing Isaac born. But in the very next paragraph we see that joy is mixed with sorrow there's been this rising tension between Isaac and Ishmael and it comes to a head and we see that just because you're a follower of God consequences don't just magically go away and so often our joy is mixed with sorrow so if you live a life of faith you will experience both joy and sorrow and third we'll see that a life of faith means that God is with you despite his failures despite his doubts there is a constant in Abraham's life and it's that God is with him so let's start together in chapter 20 to see that a life of faith is a work in progress Bible says from there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he journeyed, sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now let's stop right there for a second. If we take a step back, we remember going all the way back to Genesis 12 that Abraham has left his homeland, he's left his people, he's left his family believing that God will honor his word and give him a new home, a blessing, descendants, and a place for his descendants to be the people of God. But for now, Abraham is a sojourner, which means he's a nomad means he's uh, moving around. And, And so as a nomad, from time to time, you have to gather up your belongings and move to another place. And so as chapter 20 opens up, we see that Abraham is on the move again, and he comes into this region known as Gerar. It's the land of the Philistines. And soon enough, Abraham meets Abimelech, the king of Gerar. And instead of introducing himself as Abraham and then his wife as Sarah... He introduces his wife as his sister. And when that happens, Abimelech takes Sarah as one of his uh, wives into his harem. Now, if you've been with us, you might be thinking that I'm confused and I've gone back a couple of chapters because this sound is a lot like deja vu. Because the story is oddly familiar. But if, if that's the case, you're paying attention because this has happened Before, back in Genesis 12, when Abraham goes down to Egypt, he tells the people there that Sarah is his sister and she gets taken into Pharaoh's harem. Abraham withholds the reality. Instead of being honest and forthright, he withholds that information that Sarah is his wife and he tells a half-truth that Sarah is his sister. The reason I say it's a half-truth is because uh, uh, Sarah is his half-sister. They share the same father, not the same mother. And so on one hand, 
it's kind of true, but he leaves out the most important piece that she's actually his wife. See, when we leave out the most important details, even if what we say is true, it's still in total a lie. This will be made plain later in the story when Abraham comes clean with Abimelech. But the big point is that he withholds the important fact that Sarah is his wife. And so Abimelech decides to take Sarah into his harem. Now, what happens here is wrong on a a multitude of levels. The first, it shows a lack of faith in God to protect his family. His his reasoning is that if he uh, tells them that she's his wife, that they'll kill him in order to take her. But it shows a lack of faith that God will protect him. Hasn't God already told him that he and Sarah will have a son? So he knows that God has promised something in the future to come, which means he's got to at least be alive long enough to get to that point, right? He's got to be at least alive long enough to father a son and to welcome it in his world, which he should be thinking, at this point, I'm invincible. Nothing can happen to me until God's word proves true and I have a son. But he doubts. Nothing can happen to him until he's seen a child come into this world. It's also wrong because it shows a disregard for Sarah. Think about it. Who's he thinking about in all of this? Himself. He's willing to save his own skin without regard for what will happen to her. He's much more interested in self-preservation than he is about the purity of his own marriage. And think about this. God has promised that he and Sarah will have a son in about a year. If you remember in, the, uh, in our last sermon, God has come to them and said, in about a year, I will visit you and you will have a son. Previously, God was making promises that you will have a son. Now he's put a timeline on it. Very soon, Sarah will become pregnant with a son. And what do you think happens when a woman is taken into a man's harem? If she's taken into his harem, the paternity of her child will forever be clouded with speculation. If Abimelech sleeps with Sarah, the question will forever loom over them. Whose father is this child? Is it Abimelech or is it Abraham? But fortunately for Abraham, God will not let the deception go on. And we see in verse 3, God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because the woman you've taken, she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she said, he is my brother. And the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So God comes to Abimelech in a dream and reveals that Sarah is actually Abraham's wife. And because he's taken her, God says, death will come to your house. And you heard Abimelech plead his case. He said, listen, I, I'm innocent. I, I, I don't think I've done anything wrong. He said, 
you know, she's my sister and I'm the king, so I can kind of do what I want. I, I had no idea that she was married. And he says, I didn't even touch her. And God says, well, of course I know that. I know all things, I'm God. But just so you are aware, it was I who kept you from sinning against me and touching her. It reminds me of the proverb in 21, uh, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water and the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God is sovereign and he is in control. He tells Abimelech, it wasn't your own integrity and your own moral uprightness. It was me. I kept you from touching her. I am in control. Friends, there are no circumstances. There are no situations or kings or governments or dominions or powers that are outside of God's control. Do you honestly think that God would... uh, make promises, have a trajectory for human history and leave it up to chance? Absolutely not. The promises of God are not left to chance and they will not be foiled by our sin. God intervenes to ensure that Abimelech does not sleep with Sarah. And God tells Abimelech that he needs to return Sarah to Abraham. Now look what happens. Verse 9. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Isn't it ironic that it's the pagan king who's the righteous one in this story. Abraham is called the prophet of God and he's the one who's done things that ought not to be done. He's learning a lesson in morality from this king, right? And Abimelech wants to know why. Why would you do this to us? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place and they'll kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Do you see Abraham's reasoning? He believes that nobody in this land, in the land of Canaan, fears God. And so they'll do as they please with no regard for right or wrong. So instead of trusting in God, what is he doing? He's leaning on his own understanding, on his own reasoning. He's really driven by fear of man and the consequences of things they might do instead of fear and trust in the Lord. It's a plan rooted in unbelief, driven by fear, and overflowing with cowardice. His sin puts Sarah at risk. It puts his family line at risk. It puts Abimelech and his family at risk. See, that's what our sin does. It puts everyone around us at risk. Now this scene ends with Abimelech returning Sarah. He blesses Abraham with money and livestock and servants. He gives Abraham permission to dwell in the land. And then Abraham prays for healing on Abimelech and his household. So what do we learn here in this first episode. Remember, we're spending a few years with Abraham and our hope is to learn some things about 
faith, what a life of faith looks like. And here we learn our first principle, that a life of faith is a work in progress. On one hand, Abraham should have learned this lesson a long time ago, right? The very same thing happened in Egypt. He should have learned his lesson there. But we often find that in times of pressure, we fall back into these old patterns of disbelief and sin. And don't miss the irony here in this story. He says he did what he did. He came up with this plan of Sarah telling a lie that that, that she was his sister, of him lying because he believes there's no fear of God in the land. Don't miss the irony. Who lacks the fear of God in this scenario? See, if Abraham properly feared the Lord, if he properly trusted him, to preserve and protect him. Instead of relying on his own cunning and deceit to, uh, to protect him, he would have trusted in the Lord. What we need to see here is that you and I are complex people. Faith is never really just as simple as believe in God, right? We have moments where we shine, where, where we have great uh, uh, leadership, where our faith is strong, and then the very next day, We have moments of failure and fumbling. I'm reminded of what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 1. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Friends, there are certain sins in your life that for whatever reason you are more susceptible to than others. Pastor R. Kent Hughes writes, we each have our unique susceptibilities Sins that may not appeal to others maintain a deadly lure for us and promote a tragic recidivism. That just means a tendency to repeat again. Abraham's clinging sin when pressured was to trust himself rather than God. So sins that may beset you and befall you may not be tempting to me, but things that tempt me may not be besetting to you. But we all have besetting sins or as the writer of Hebrews says sins that cling so closely sins that seem to resurface those are what the bible calls besetting sins have you noticed that pattern in your life that you tend to have recurrence of things certain sins tend to resurface in your life they're persistent and they require our diligence and discipline to put them to death. Abraham needed to learn the lesson of Proverbs chapter 3 verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. What was his tendency? His tendency was to trust in his own understanding, his own reasoning rather than trusting in the Lord. And I think it's important, maybe it's encouraging to you as it is to me, that this person who's written about as the man of faith, his faith is also a work in progress. And if his faith is allowed to be a work in progress, what does that say about yours and mine? That we're allowed to be works in progress too. Faithful people will struggle with certain sins for a long time. Being a Christian doesn't mean you have instant victory That all your problems and struggles go away. Sin is a way of hiding and festering in the nooks and crannies of our heart. 
And it resurfaces during times of stress and temptation. But I want to offer to you that that's a gift. When our sin comes out of hiding, when our sin resurfaces, you know what that's an opportunity to do? It's an opportunity for your sin to be exposed and to be treated with a new application of the gospel. When it resurfaces and comes out of hiding, that is an opportunity for us to put it to death, to take all of the the truth and beauty and goodness of the gospel and bring it to bear on our sin anew. Abraham needed another opportunity to learn that God could be trusted beyond his reasoning and his assessment of the situation. So Seven Mile, what besetting sins in your life need attention this morning? What struggles in your life need a fresh application of the truth of Scripture? What, what clinging sin in your life needs to be laid aside so that you can run the race with endurance that is set before us? Because they resurface often, if you have any self-awareness, you, you probably already know what they are right? The question is, what are you doing about them? So perhaps maybe a good application is to pick up a good book that deals acutely with that topic. A brother in our church recently said, pastor, I'm struggling with anger. And I was able to recommend a good book that specifically and acutely deals with that problem. And I knew that book and had that book in my library because I struggled with anger. And I was able, as a brother in Christ, to recommend a book with, uh, for him. Perhaps it's time to bring in some people in your life, some trusted friends to hold you accountable and to pray with you, to, to ask you often, how is that going? That's why we do community here at Seven Mile Road and gospel communities and in DNA groups so that we build Christian community so that we can co-labor together and put sin to death together. Whatever you decide to do, you have to be proactive. If you are reactive with your sin, then it will make progress in your life. But if we're proactive... We can start to put it to death. Though a life of faith is a work in progress, a life of faith shouldn't be a life of regress. We want to make progress, forward progress, not backward regress. Let's grow in maturity together. A life of faith is a work in progress. Now let's jump into chapter 21 and see that a life of faith experiences both joy and sorrow. Remember what chapter 21 said? The Lord had visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore to Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Now, if you follow the timeline in these chapters, it's been 25 years since God promised Abraham to open Sarah's womb and to give them the joy of a son. Chapter 12, we learned that Abraham was 75 when he left Haran to go to the promised land. And now he is 100 years old. And do you see that three times in these verses, Moses emphasized the Lord's commitment to be good to his word. Did you see it in the text? The Lord visited Sarah as he said, as he promised, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Why do you think Moses is doing that? He wants us to know God can be trusted. He will be good to his word. Despite Abraham's failures, 
Just think of the two occasions that he gave up his wife to another man. Despite the time when he and Sarah, instead of trusting in the Lord, went about their own understanding and they tried to go another route with Hagar. Despite his doubts that God would be faithful to his word. Despite Sarah's disbelief that she could be a mother. Despite the fact that Sarah's womb had died. The way of women had ceased to be with her, which is the Bible's way of saying she was done. There was, her, her womb was no longer physically capable of having children, despite all of that. And I think God allowed all of that to happen to show this child did not come by chance, but by the sovereign hand of God. Despite all of it, God promised and his word was true his word never fails friends God's promises always come to pass according to his wisdom and according to his timing and to show his power and faithfulness the Lord fulfilled his promise bringing life to her dead womb and I think this is one of the first glimpses the first taste that we get of the power of resurrection life that God is in the business of bringing life to dead things that God brings life from death and in their joy Abraham and Sarah got to welcome this child into this world Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him whom Sarah bore him Isaac and Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God commanded him Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Do you remember what the name Isaac means? It means he laughs. Isaac is the son of laughter. If you remember a couple chapters ago, both Abraham and Sarah laughed at the notion that a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman could have a baby together. And if you remember those chapters, their laughs are complicated. They're doubt-filled at the notion that, that they could have children because it seems impossible. And yet at the same time, there's this tinge of hope in there because they've wanted so desperately to have a child for so long. But now... Their laughter is full joy. As they look into their son of laughter, all doubts are put to rest and their joy is full. If you had spent this year with Abraham and Sarah, you would have seen the, the hope surge throughout her body as she became pregnant. As each month passed and as she grew bigger and bigger with this child, you would have seen them. You would have seen their, 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 their joy. You would have experienced the milestone moment when she gave birth to Isaac. You would have seen that baby boy and you would have said, this is a house of joy. But then just a few verses later, we come face to face with the reality that the consequences of their sin don't magically go away. And mixed with their joy comes sorrow. Verse 8 says, as the child grew, that's Isaac, and was weaned. Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. 
But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out the slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing, don't miss this, was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For though Isaac, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. Now by the time we get to chapter or, or verse 8, three years have passed. And we know this because traditionally in ancient Israel, uh, children were weaned at the age of three. So what that means is Isaac is about three, Ishmael is about 16 or 17. And we find that the son of laughter, Isaac, has also caused his older brother, Ishmael, to laugh. But this isn't a joyful laugh. This isn't a laugh of acceptance. This isn't a playful laugh. This is a mocking kind of laughter. And Sarah takes notice. If you look in your, uh, in your Bible uh, where it says laughter in this chapter, you probably have a footnote that says mockery on it. Because in Galatians chapter 4 verse 29, Paul says that Ishmael persecuted Isaac. And he's looking back at this situation. See, it's understandable. We get it. Why would young Ishmael feel jealousy? Because he's being displaced by this new child. He knows that before Isaac came along, he was the only son. He enjoyed a relationship with Abraham, his father. But now the son of promise has come. Now all attention is on Isaac. And he's been left in the dust. He's been displaced. And here we see Sarah get a glimpse into the trajectory of this relationship between Isaac and Ishmael. What do you think is going to happen over the years as these boys grow up together, vying for the attention of their father, vying for the, the chance to become the heir to, to Abraham's legacy? She sees that trajectory and she wants nothing to do with it. She has little regard for what happens to Hagar and Ishmael, even though they've been part of the family for years. She doesn't consider the fact that even though it was her decision to give Hagar to Abraham in the first place, all she can see right now is her concern for Isaac, and she wants to make sure that Ishmael is nowhere near him as he grows up. And so she demands that Abraham get rid of them. Think about Abraham. This whole mess of a situation brought about because he wouldn't lead his home. He wouldn't stand up and say, Sarah, I think this is a bad idea. God has promised that you and I would have a child so we don't need to go through this alternate means. You think about the fact that he loved Ishmael. He's his son. He also has a care and concern for Hagar and yet at the same time, Isaac is this son of promise and Sarah is his beloved wife. And so he's caught between a rock and a hard place. Things could have been different if Ishmael and Hagar had turned their attention to serving and supporting Isaac as he grew up to be the heir of promise. If they had said, listen, God has promised that through Abraham and through this child, all who bless them will be blessed. And if we will just come along with this family and support them, we will find our blessing too. 
but they allow the pain and bitterness of being rejected fester and the tensions are rising and we all know things cannot remain as they are. And in this moment, God comes to Abraham. He's confused about what to do. He's sorrowful about what the decision before him and God gives him direction. He tells him to send Ishmael and Hagar away but he can do so knowing that God will look after them. God will protect them and he will make good on his promise to make Ishmael into a great nation. Again, if you had been there, if we had been there, we would have felt the pain of this situation. We would have felt the impossibleness of this situation. And within those years, you would have said, man, a life of faith experiences both joy and sorrow. Now, this is an important reality to understand. I've been a pastor for over a decade now, and one of the things that new believers often say to me is, Pastor, I've become a Christian, but I've been going through immense sorrow. I've walked through tragedy. Things have not gotten easier. In fact, what? Things have gotten harder. I thought when I said yes to Jesus, everything was going to work out for me. And all the mature believers in the room kind of smile, right? Because they know that's not how it works, right? The Bible does not paint some idealistic picture of the life of faith. When we come to Jesus, yes, you come alive to him in a way that you've never experienced life before. I remember when I first came to Christ, it was like before everything was in black and white and it was like now it was all in color. We live in a broken world and we will still participate in that brokenness. Though we're alive to Jesus, we still live in a broken world. I think often we tend to underestimate the impact of our sin. We know it's bad theoretically, but we don't consider the fact that our sin has far-reaching effects and collateral damage. Think of it this way. We all know our sin is bad. I think we often think of it like an arrow, right? An arrow does damage, but it's localized and direct, right? If you shoot an arrow over here, no one over here is impacted. But the reality is, is that our sin is more like a pipe bomb. It explodes in multiple directions with shrapnel going everywhere. See, consequences from our sin don't just magically go away because we've put, said yes to Christ. Now, don't hear me wrong. When we sin, we can pray to God and we can ask for forgiveness, and God is faithful. Every single time we ask for forgiveness, God does forgive us, and our relationship with him is restored. But that doesn't mean the consequences that follow our sin just go away. Sometimes they never go away. And this is where the Bible is honest about living in a broken and fallen world. As you follow Jesus, it is true, you will experience times of heightened joy. As you pray, God will answer your prayers and you will know the ever-increasing joy of being a son and daughter of God. But at the same time, you will have times of deep sorrow. 
there will be times when you go, I don't know what's going on. I don't know why this is happening in my life. And you will pray and it will seem like there is no answer. I love that the Bible is straightforwardly honest about it. And it's important to understand this truth so that our expectations are rightly managed. You see, until Jesus comes again to bring the fullness of his kingdom, you will experience both joy and sorrow. It doesn't mean that God loves you any less. It just means, friends, you live in a broken world. But God in his kindness never wastes our sorrow. He uses everything, both joy and sorrow, for our good. Romans 8.28 says, We know that for those who love God, all things, friends, all things, both your joy and your sorrow, work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I believe if Paul could have talked with Abraham, if Paul had sat there with Abraham in that moment, he would have said, Abe, listen to me. Own what you need to own in this situation. Repent for being passive, for failing to lead your home all those years ago when Sarah presented the plan to give Hagar to you. Repent of that. It was wrong. Ask God to forgive you for doubting his word and taking matters into your own hands. But at the same time, Abe, know this. God is going to work even this difficult situation, even this impossible situation for your good. And when you go to bed tonight, you can sleep knowing that God is in control and his purposes will come to pass. And that same advice that Paul would have given to Abraham, Paul gives to us. In this life, you will experience both joy and sorrow And you can rest tonight knowing that God will use all of it, every bit of it, for your good. The life of faith is a work in progress. And friends, you will experience both joy and sorrow. And finally, a life of faith means that God is with you. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore, swear to me, Hear by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I've dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. So we find out this last scene that Abraham continues to live in Gerar in the land of the Philistines where Abimelech is king. And he comes to Abraham to ensure that all is still well between them and that as long as Abraham dwells in the land, that they will live at peace with one another, dealing honestly and kindly with each other. And as the story ends, we see Abraham and Abimelech peacefully resolve a conflict over a disputed well. And for the sake of time, we're not going to go into that, uh, uh, into that treaty that they make. But the scene ends with him planting a tree and worshiping God to remember this moment, calling upon the Lord as the everlasting God. And the one point I want to highlight here is this. Despite his previous issue with lying about Sarah, Abimelech can see that God is with Abraham in all that he does. Think about that. What does he know of Abraham? (laughs) That he lied to him? That he almost got him and his family killed? And yet, what does he remember about Abraham? God is with him in all that he does. 
Abimelech remembers how the Lord met him in a dream to keep him from touching Sarah. He knows how the Lord closed the wombs of his household, even though he had acted innocently. He knows that when Abraham prayed, God responded and uh, opened up the wombs again. He sees now that Abraham has fathered a child in his old age. He just saw this hundred-year-old guy have a child. Whatever he thinks or knows about Abraham, the one distinguishing thing he says about him is this. God is with him and God is for him. It's the one truth that rises above the surface of all the other truths. Abraham or Abimelech can see what we can see as well as we consider the life of Abraham. Do you remember who Abraham was when he was living in the Ur of the Chaldeans? He was a nobody. We would not know anything about Abraham if God had not called him out of a life of sin and insignificance into relationship with him. God showed him incredible favor and grace to make and keep incredible promises to him. He was with Abraham when he went up against insurmountable odds to rescue his nephew Lot from captivity. Do you remember that? He was going up against pirate kings vastly outnumbered and God was with him. He was with Abraham when he entered into a formal relationship and covenant with him, binding himself to Abraham forever. He was with Abraham in his doubts and his struggles. You remember, instead of casting him out, he pulled him aside and went on a nightly walk with him to show him the stars. He said, your descendants will be like that. He was with Abraham when he visited him and Sarah for a meal in their home. He was with Abraham and Sarah when he opened up her womb so that they could welcome Isaac into this world. Simply put, friends, the only reason we know anything about a man named Abraham who lived over 4,000 years ago is because God was with him and God was for him. And this is the distinguishing reality of a life of faith. In your failures, in your triumphs, in your days of joy, and your days of sorrow, God is with you and God is for you. And I love how the Bible does this so often. Some of the most profound statements ever stated in the Bible aren't from the heroes of faith, but come from the most unexpected voices. Abimelech is the one who says, Abraham, there's one thing I know to be true about your life, that God is with you. And I think it's even more profound than Abimelech realizes. You see, it's the first glimmer of hope since the fall in the garden that God will be with and for his people once again. God's plan of redemption is starting to take a particular direction. And it will take the rest of scripture to unfold the fullness of this reality. But you could think of the Bible as this. As each chapter unfolds, we're getting more and more to the fullness of the reality that God will dwell and be with and for his people once again. See, by the time we get to the New Testament, what is the name of Jesus given to him? Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. What we see in this moment is beginning a trajectory that will ultimately culminate In Paul's famous passage in Romans chapter 8, let these words of gospel truth just wash over you this morning. Paul concludes, what then shall we say to these things? He's just unfolded a doctrine of salvation. And then he says this, if God is for us, 
Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who can, be a char- who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So then he says, because of that, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? And friends, you can add your list to that as well. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, a life of faith means that God is with us and God is for us. Not because of what we have done, Not because of what we've left undone, but simply because God has decided to set the fullness of his love and favor upon you in Christ Jesus. So Seven Mile, remember, a life of faith is a work in progress. It will be filled with personal victories. It will also be filled with failure. But take heart. You know why? God always finishes what he started, what he started. That God has begun a good work in you and he will be faithful to see it to completion. Remember, a life of faith will experience both joy and sorrow, but take heart because God works all things, all of them, all your joy, all your sorrow for your good. And remember, a life of faith means that God is with you and for you. Nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray.